up somewhere on a beach right now, relaxing, uh, which is, you know, so needed for them. And so they're, they're uh, on vacation. They'll be back soon. And P. Fred will have some time still off the pulpit uh, in July. And so we have an awesome lineup. Sharon Thomas, who was just on the screen. Steve Ruggiero. Going to be preaching in July. And it's, it's going to be fantastic. Um, but we've been in this series called Hot Sign Your Soul, and I'm, uh, you know, just one of the speakers on that awesome lineup, but Hot Sign Your Soul, last week, uh, or actually two weeks ago, Pastor Fred opened it up for us, and this series has been all about discipleship, and, uh, and so we've been using the imagery of the hot sign at Krispy Kreme to kind of be the, the, uh, the picture for this series, and I shared last week that as far as I'm concerned, right, a fresh hot Krispy Kreme donut straight from the outlet, straight from Krispy Kreme itself is the only real authentic Krispy Kreme donut, right? Only a hot Krispy Kreme donut uh, can, can earn the badge of an authentic, uh, real Krispy Kreme donut. And so we used that last week to talk about this idea of authentic Christianity, that Christianity is only really authentic if it's attached to discipleship. Right, so, so there's many uh, brands of, of, of store-bought maybe Christianity that's a little bit more comfortable, but what's real, what's authentic is a Christianity that's attached to discipleship. And so we also talked last week that discipleship is not just a belief, right? Discipleship is not just saying, you know, I, I like Jesus, I kind of like what he says, and I, I believe in him. Discipleship is actually doing it, doing the work, the activity. It's the way of life. It's the way that we live. And so uh, for my two uh, sermons in this series, the title is The Way of Discipleship. Before we were called uh, Christians, we were called followers of the way because we were known as being people who weren't just believers, right? People who didn't just think a certain way. We were known as people who lived a certain way, who, who walked a certain way. And so we've been working with this idea of discipleship as, there it goes, discipleship as um, a journey. Discipleship is a way, right? Discipleship is a journey, the goal of which is to grow closer to Christ, both in character and relationship. So discipleship is a journey, the goal of which is to grow closer to Christ, both in character and relationship. And so last week, we hit on this first goal of uh, what it means to grow closer to Christ in character. One more time. There it goes. All right. Uh, with the 24 virtues, so we're not going to get into these tonight, but, but these 24 virtues, this is what Christ looks like. So last week we talked about, you know, if you want to look like Christ, if you want to grow closer to Christ in character, then you're going to look like these things on the screen, right? Authentic, wise, patient, grateful. These things up there, this is the picture of Christ. And so uh, one of our goals of discipleship, where we're headed to on this journey of discipleship, is towards looking, towards these virtues, towards looking like this, looking like Jesus. But what I want to talk about tonight is the second goal, that we grow closer to Christ in our discipleship, in our journey, not just um, in our character, but also that we grow closer to Christ in our relationship with him. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And before we do, let's pray. 
Father God, thank you that you are here. God, thank you that your presence, uh, we, we can feel tonight, it's tangible. God, and we know that you want to speak to us. So we say, God, give us ears to hear. God, give us eyes to see so that we can uh, truly take in all it is that you want to lead us in. And so I pray, God, as I speak, Lord, that you would continue to speak to me. God, lead me uh, as I lead uh, in just uh, speaking tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so just to kind of warm us up on this topic a little bit, I'm going to come down there to you. But my question for you guys tonight is what are some of like the worst or the cheesiest slash appropriate, right? Got to keep that in there. Keep a G. But what are some of the cheesiest pickup lines that you've ever heard? Yes. Oh, I love it. She's ready. Go ahead. Just yell it out. I'll repeat it in the mic. Hey, baby. I got a pocket full of personality. You want to help, help me come spend it? Did you hear that? <laughs> got a pocket full of personality. Want to help me come spend it? Anybody else? Is this uncomfortable for you that you have to say this to me? I didn't think this part through in my preparation. I'll just look away. All right. Yeah. I won't look. Yeah? Did it hurt? Did it hurt? And then you say, oh, when you fell from heaven. So did it hurt when you fell from heaven? I've heard that one. Oh, this is the worst. Go ahead. So he said, how much does, the polar, uh, does a polar bear weigh? How much, Jamal? Enough to, break the ice. Enough to break the ice. That's awful. All right, one more. All right, Sally, go ahead. Oh, yes. Did you hear? Okay, that was great. Christian pickup lines. Our seers, take notes. Because if you're going to use pickup lines, it's got to be Christian ones, right? Sally said, I was reading through numbers the other day and realized I didn't have yours. That's a good one. That's a real good one. All right. One more. At least one more. Okay, I got one. Two more. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Hey, that, that's very assertive, confident. You got plans tonight? Because you're looking at them, right? Go ahead, Ben. If I could rearrange the alphabet, I'd put you and I together. As I was doing my research earlier, research, right, on cheesy pickup lines, I saw that same one, except they said I'd put I and you together. And just as an English major, that frustrated the mess out of me, right? So I came prepared with a few, just in case you felt uncomfortable, but you guys did pretty good. <laughs> um, so just imagine this guy saying it as I read these. These are some of like the most egregious ones that I could find, the most offensive to me. Uh, do you believe in love at first sight or should I walk by again? All right. <laughs> this one, this is like very popular. I'd never heard this one before, but like it's everywhere. Apparently people use it on Tinder. I don't know. Um, excuse me, do you have any raisins? How about a date? Right? Get it? You got to think about it. Date. Okay, raisins. It's bad. Exactly. You know, we've met before. Remember that dream you had of the perfect guy? So bad. See, I love that your reaction is that, right? That your reaction is like, oh, like it makes you gag. It's like, that's disgusting. Disgusting, right? So pickup lines we know as being not the most uh, successful of tools to begin relationships, right? So I was uh, 
as we're talking about discipleship, I've been looking through the Gospels and looking at Jesus's relationship with his disciples. And I, I noticed, I began to notice a pattern with Jesus, that he was, as he was going, he was just kind of collecting disciples, picking up disciples, if you will, not in a romantic way, right? But, but picking up disciples along the way on his journey. And so if you thought that those pickup lines were bad, right, listen to Jesus's pickup line. It's awful, okay? If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your, or turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. Imagine, right, some random guy coming up to you and saying, hey, if you want to be with me, you want to have relationship with me, you got to stop being selfish, first of all, right? And, and, and by the way, it's going to be really hard being with me, right? You, you're going to have to take up your cross. I'm like, Jesus, that is the worst. That's not good, right? <laughs> and so we as Christians, oftentimes we try to help Jesus with his game a little bit, right? Like I can't go out into the world trying to pick up people for Jesus using his pickup line because it's awful, Right? And so we, we tend, as Christians, to kind of sugarcoat uh, the invitation that Christ gives to us as disciples. And so I've been reading this book um, that is just fantastic. It's called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've heard a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and have read lots of excerpts and quotes, but never read a full book by him. And so in the process of doing that now, and this is becoming definitely one of my favorites, I'm sure C. Ruggiero has read it like 10 times already. But, uh, but it says in this book, I love, this is how uh, Bonhoeffer describes to us what we do with Christ's invitation to discipleship, right? We sugarcoat it. We, we, we water it down. It says, and he refers to it as cheap grace. So he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Too often, as Christians, right, we look at the invitation of Jesus to come to him, to become a disciple, to uh, be with him, to be in relationship with him, and we say, that's too, that's too harsh, that's no good. It won't work. And so we sugarcoat it. We use these cheap pickup lines to Christianity, and we tell people all about the forgiveness and all about the grace, which don't get me wrong, that, that's where Jesus starts with us, right? But we leave out the parts about laying down, turning from our way and following him and picking up our cross. We leave out the hard stuff, Right? And then maybe for some of you, if you've been seduced to church before by, by one of those, you know, pickup lines to Christianity and you find yourself in the pews and you're like, this is not what I expected, right? Like, I'm not about this Christianity life because I thought it was just going to be like, I do stuff on the, uh, during the week and then I come to church and I get forgiven, right? Like, what's all this stuff about having to change my life and having to turn from my selfish ways? That's not attractive to me. But what's so great about your reaction just a second ago when I was reading those cheesy pickup lines is that they're like, they're not effective, right? You don't want to go into relationship with someone who initiates conversation with you that way because it's inauthentic. 
It's not real. You don't know who they are. You can't trust, right? They're just buttering you up to to, uh, get near you, and and you have no idea who that person actually is. The reason why Jesus' pickup line to discipleship is so bad is because it's not a pickup line, right? He's interested in real relationship with us. He's interested in authentic relationship with us. And so for that reason, Jesus puts all the cards on the table and he says, look, this is, this is what I expect. This is what this relationship is going to look like. Cheesy pickup lines don't work because they're inauthentic. And authenticity can only be realized in real life relationships. Real life relationships are forged in the fires of real life activity. So rather than Jesus kind of superficially inviting us to follow him, he opens up with an invitation to real-life activity. And so tonight I want to focus on the three activities in uh, this verse that he invites us into. To have relationship with Jesus, he invites us to turn, he invites us to take up, and he invites us to follow me. So let's look first at turn. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. I only have part of it up on the screen. So the first activity that Jesus invites us into as disciples is to turn. Turn from our own ways, which is really an invitation of immediate response. In Mark chapter 1, Verses 16 through 20, this is the first account in the book of Mark about uh, uh, where Jesus is inviting disciples to follow him. And it says, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at, at once and followed him. A little farther Up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. I mean, imagine this, right? Imagine you're at work, right? You're sitting in your cubicle, scrolling through BuzzFeed, right, or Facebook or whatever, and this random guy comes up and invites you to follow him. And if you go with him, if you leave and actually follow this guy out of the office, right, then there are consequences, right? That's called job abandonment, right? You, you will lose your job. And so when these people, when it, it, it blows my mind, and I wonder if it, you've ever thought this when you're reading these stories, these people, they literally, they just drop everything and follow Jesus, right? What they're doing in these moments, it's immediate obedience and In that action, in that obedience, they're turning from their old way, never to return again. And some people might say, okay, well, they were fishermen, at least James and John, right? Like they were employed with their father. And so surely they they can come back to fishing and some of the disciples actually do later on. So you're like, well, you know, it's not that permanent. There's another guy that Jesus invites. In Mark chapter two, verses 13 through 14. It says, Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. 
Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Again, same kind of situation, same pattern, except Levi, also known as Matthew, right? His job was not just something that you could uh, come back to. As a tax collector, this job was in high demand, right? And so if he left the next day, right then and there, there's somebody else waiting at the door to, to take his job. Levi, when he left, he was leaving behind. He was turning from his past and, and making an indelible line from who he was to who he was becoming as he turned in immediate obedience to follow Jesus. We learn two things when we look at this immediate obedience of these disciples, this response to, to follow Jesus right there in the instant. We learn that to be a disciple, we must first acknowledge Christ as our ultimate authority. These disciples, in order to turn and leave, they're acknowledging the fact that, hey, you're more important. I respect you more. You have more authority to me than my boss, right? They're giving these people, these people are giving Jesus the ultimate authority, the authority to boss them around, to tell them what to do. And so by responding immediately, we know that the, the first thing we need to know about discipleship is we must first acknowledge Christ as our ultimate authority. Whether these uh, disciples knew that Jesus was Christ, whether they knew that he was the Savior, there's no contextual evidence for that, right? There's nothing that says that they had any idea or had any um, thought that maybe Jesus might be the Savior, but they did know, and we can tell by their actions, that he was their Lord. He decided in that moment that, you know, right now you're going to be my Lord. So often as Christians, we're so good in relationship with Jesus to call him our Savior, to acknowledge that part of our relationship with him, but so not good at acknowledging him as our Lord. Right? And so these disciples, in an instant, because they were willing to obey him immediately and turn and leave behind everything, they were acknowledging, hey, you are my Lord. You're my master. You're my ultimate authority. The second thing we learn about discipleship from these disciples' immediate obedience is the fact that there are no prerequisites to discipleship. The fact that these men were fishermen tells us that they wouldn't have made it in rabbinical school, right? That they weren't like, they didn't have, they weren't the most learned, right? The most educated. They didn't, they wouldn't, they're, they're not the most religious, right? And so the fact that Jesus calls them of all people to join him is like craziness, right? They, they don't have the prerequisites. They don't have the resume. And then for Jesus to top it off and go to Levi, the tax collector, tax collectors were like hated. They were seen by the Jews as greedy people, as traitors to uh, the Jewish race, right? And so they, for Jesus to invite Levi to come follow him, it's saying, hey, no prerequisites, no resume, no prior experience required. Just come, right? I share that because so often why we hesitate to immediately respond to Christ's invitation to discipleship is because we think that we've got to fix ourselves up first. We think that we have to do some work on the side. We've got to put our suit and tie on to, to have an a, a, a interview with Jesus. We've got to have our stuff together before I can become a disciple. Or else, right, we think that discipleship is for like those Christians, 
right? Discipleship is for like the super religious. I'm over here, I'm a Christian, I'm happy being a Christian and, and, and acknowledging Lord as, or Jesus as my Savior, and you can have Jesus as the Lord, right? You, you super religious over there, you, you can have Jesus as, as your Lord, you can be a disciple. But this extension, this invitation that, that Jesus extends to us, it's to all of us. That's why he chose the disciples that he chose, no prerequisites required. There is no road to discipleship. There's no road to discipleship because disciples are made in a moment. But there is a road of discipleship that comes after your decision to turn from your old way of life and follow Jesus. So the next point, the next action that Jesus invites us into after he invites us to turn and um, to have immediate obedience. He invites us to take up our cross, which really is saying he's inviting us to deny ourselves, right? And so we're going to look at uh, the story in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Many of us are familiar with this story, and we know this as the story of the rich young ruler, right? But I want to kind of retitle that as you're flipping there. I only have parts of the story up there. So uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles or your smartphones or whatever to, Ma- uh, to Mark 10, uh, we know this as the story of the rich young ruler typically, but tonight I'm going to rename it the story of the would-be disciple, right? We just, we just saw some, some people who became disciples because of their immediate obedience. And now we're about to look at what it looks like when someone is a would-be disciple, close, gets almost there, but doesn't quite go all the way. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says, As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. And he stops and he says, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Right off the bat, we see that this would-be disciple is different from all the rest, right? He doesn't wait for Jesus to come his way like the other ones do. He's running, literally running to Jesus. And it says that he throws himself down at his feet and even accidentally calls him God, right, which Jesus, like, kind of has a laugh about. He, and so he's acknowledging not only that Jesus is Savior, but also acknowledging his lordship by kneeling down to him, by, by calling him good teacher. He's saying, hey, I acknowledge you as my ultimate authority. And he comes with prerequisites, right? Jesus is like, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? And he's like, bro, I got you. I've been doing that since I was like five years old, right? Like, he came with his resume. And so he's got the turn part down on the outside, it seems, right? It it looks like he's got that part down. He's got obedience down. He can turn from his old way of life. He seems like he's prepared to, to follow Jesus. But what about this request of Jesus to take up your cross? If we continue reading in the story, in verse 21... It says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. 
There is still, thing you ha- still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. You might read this part of the story and think, that's not fair, right? Like, Jesus didn't require that of all the other disciples. That, that seems a little bit out of his character. Why would, that, that's not fair that Jesus would ask this guy to give up all of his possessions. Why did he do that? I love the version of this story in Mark because it, it says that, it uses this specific word in the Greek. It says, looking at the man. The word looking in Greek literally means looking into, seeing clearly. Jesus, with love in his eyes, was able to look at this man and see that there were some unhealthy attachments in him. And Jesus knew, right, that that if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to follow me in in this journey, that you're going to have to let that stuff go. That that you're going to have to deny yourself. There's parts of yourself that you're going to have to die to. And so Jesus was able to see those parts in that man. And and, and so he he says just flat out, hey, just so you know, you're going to have to die to these things that you're attached to. I don't know if this man, you know, related his identity to his wealth or what his attachment was. But clearly it was unhealthy. And Jesus brought it to the table. He brought it to his attention, not because... He didn't want the man to be his disciple. It says that Jesus looked at him with love, right? With genuine love. But because he knew this man would never make the journey if he wasn't willing to die to himself along the way. That same kind of interaction is the same for us. Jesus, when he looks at us, he looks at us with genuine love, but he also looks at our unhealthy attachments and he asks us, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to die to those things. Why? Because they're unhealthy. Because if you hold on to those things, you're not going to make it in this journey. And ultimately, Jesus wants relationship with us. He wants us to be on this journey with him. And so he says, look, if you're not willing to die to these things, then then halfway down the road, you're going to give up. You're going to turn back. You need to know that it's going to be tough. You need to know that I'm going to ask you to do some things. Sometimes, We think that if Jesus really loved us, that he wouldn't ask us to give up this relationship. If Jesus really loved us, then he wouldn't ask us to do this thing that I don't really feel like doing. If Jesus really loved us, he wouldn't ask us to take up our cross to deny ourselves. But it's because he loves us that he asks us to die to ourselves so that we can go a little farther in the journey with him. If we're not willing to deny ourselves, then we're not going to make it on this journey called discipleship. Again, Bonhoeffer says in the same book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. If we're prioritizing Jesus over everything, then we're not going to be whining the whole way about how much suffering, how difficult it is to follow him, right? If our eyes are fixed on him, if we're, we're enthralled by the person of Jesus in this relationship with him, then we're not going to 
be so focused on the suffering of the relationship that I have to give up or that thing that he asked me to do that I don't want to. So I have a confession tonight, and uh, it's this. I do not enjoy working out. I don't. When I go to the gym in the morning, my wife probably thinks, David's having a great time, right? He loves to work out, right? I've had conversations probably with many of you where I've led you on to believe that I love to work out, right? I'm sorry. This is my confession before all of you. I hate working out, right? The truth is, I love the benefits of working out, right? I love to feel fit. I love to feel stronger. You know, I I love the results. I like to see, you, you know, my body change as I'm putting in work and working out. But while I'm doing it, like not so much. I don't really, I don't like the pain of those curls or whatever. Will and I, we work out. Uh, Will Anger is on tech tonight. We work out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so, you know, we have summer goals. Winter goals and summer goals, if you all know, they're different. In the winter, you can, it's called hashtag bulking, right? In the summer, you're trying to get lean, right? You're trying to get slim. And so because of that, we're doing some workouts right now that I just honestly, I do not enjoy. And it's circuit training. So if any of you guys know anything about that, like the 300 uh, routine or like uh, Spartacus or whatever, these workout routines, the circuit training is like you do, they say, like you do some exercise for like 45 seconds, right? 30, 45 seconds, no big deal. And then you have 15 second break, and then you do another exercise for 45, 30 seconds. And it's only 10 minutes, like no big deal, right? You do that once and then you do it again for 20 minutes. And so on paper, it looks awesome. During those 45 seconds, you want to die, right? This is suffering, I hate this. And then 15 seconds to breathe in between You know, doing jump lunges, it's not fun. Like, can I be honest? It's not fun. So when I'm doing, when I'm working out, right, I don't like it. (laughs) When I'm working out, it's painful. When I'm working out, I don't like it. Um, So another confession to Will. Will's Will's a busy guy, right? And so there are sometimes, he's got a brand new baby. Sometimes his job calls him away. And so there are some Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays that he's not able to show up to the gym. No, I know what you're thinking. I still go to the gym. Please, people, I go, okay? Um, My wife was like, you better be going because where do you go? I still go to the gym, but typically, like, I stroll in 15 minutes late, right, when he's not there. And I do the workouts, but that 15-second rest might become, like, 20-second rest. And if, if Will were there, we'd do, like, three rounds, but I'm over here doing, like, two rounds, right? When Will's not there, all I can focus on is my pain, right? All I can focus on is this stinks. I don't like it. I want it to be over. And so how can I make this better, right? But when Will's there, I'm not so much focused on my pain, although I still feel it. I'm focused on his endurance because whatever he's doing, I'm going to do that, right? Or more, right? If he, whatever weight he's lifting, I'm doing that or more, right? Whatever he's doing, I'm going to do that. I'm going to match that at least, right? So what Bonhoeffer is saying in this quote, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ, no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road 
which is too hard for us. What he's saying is, when we deny ourselves, accept the suffering of discipleship, and focus our eyes on Jesus, we're focusing on our pacekeeper. If we don't have relationship with Jesus, then all we focus on is our pain. All we focus on is, Jesus asked me to give this up again, right? I, this is hard. But because we're in relationship with Jesus and he loves us, he asks us, hey, you're going to suffer a little bit. It's going to be hard sometimes, but I'm here. And so if you would just deny yourself, if you would die to those parts of yourself that are unhealthy anyway, I promise you, you're going to get so much farther. I promise you, you're going to become so much more like me. More of those virtues will show up in your life. You're going to love the results. Right now, you don't like how you feel, but you're going to love the results. Just keep your eyes on me. Don't focus on your pain. There's an expectation in authentic Christianity that we share not only in the glory of Christ, the benefits of discipleship, those virtues, but also in his suffering. I want to invite the band to come back up. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse five. It says, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comforts abound through Christ. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my burden I give you is light. In relationship with Jesus, there's comfort, there's rest, there's peace, there's joy, right? But there is also a burden. I love, and it's so interesting that it says, he invites the weary, he invites the heavy-hearted, he invites the burdened to come, and he doesn't take all the burdens away. Instead, he gives them his yoke. He gives them his burden and says, this is light, this is easy. There is no such thing as a burdenless Christianity. No such thing as a burdenless Christianity. There's rest, there's peace, there's joy, there's passion, there's all of that, but there's always a burden. On a Thursday morning, when I woke up, like many of you, I was scrolling through Instagram, through Twitter, and I just started to notice this hashtag, Philando Castile. And, um, in that moment, I just, I felt heartbroken. I clicked on, you know, the hashtag. I watched the 10 minute long gruesome video of this man literally bleeding to death in his car. And um, the best way that I can describe how I felt in that moment, I shared this with the guys at base camp this morning, is burdened. 
I love the, the meeting that we had this morning at base, base camp, the, the men's group, because we were able to just talk about this, these issues, and people were able to be vulnerable and honest. And I was able to say in that safe place, hey, when things like this happen, as a black man in America, I, I can't help but feel burdened. Like, it, I don't want to, but it just, it happens, right? I, I feel burdened. And so... Many of you, like me, on Thursday night, when I went to go to sleep, scrolling through Twitter, scrolling through Facebook, and I see the news that there's police officers being killed in Dallas, senselessly for no reason. And I felt angry, I felt frustrated, I felt confused. But then I thought about the people who are law enforcement officers, the people who are brothers and sisters and cousins and related friends, close friends, married to police officers, and thought about the burden they must have felt in that moment. They didn't choose it, they don't want it, but just seeing this, it causes their heart to feel burdened. The people who use the hashtag Black Lives Matter, they use it not because most of them out of hate, not most of them ultimately out of anger. They do it because they feel a burden. And they're just looking to the world for other people to just carry that burden with them. The people who use the hashtag Blue Lives Matter, they don't do it out of hate, most of them. They don't do it ultimately out of anger. They do it because they feel a burden that they didn't choose, right? And they're just looking for the world, for people to just help carry that burden with them. There is no such thing as burdenless Christianity. If we wanna be authentic Christians, if we wanna look like Christ, then we have to do as Christ does. And it says in that Bible that I read that he shares in our suffering. We share in his and he shares in ours. If we wanna look like Christ, we've gotta share in the suffering. We gotta get under the weight of people's crosses and take on their burden. And there's no excuse, not even if you don't understand the burden, not even if the burden doesn't affect you. As Christians, it's our responsibility it's our calling. It's the definition of discipleship, authentic Christianity, to carry the burdens of this world alongside Jesus. Stand with me. We're about to go back into worship, but I just want to pray over all of us tonight that we would be encouraged. We would be empowered tonight. To take up that call to be disciples to carry the burdens with people, to respond in obedience to Christ when he calls us to compassion, when he calls us to follow him. Father God, help us. Lord, be our pacekeeper. It's so easy to get lost in my own suffering, in my own burdens, in my own weight, God that I lose sight of you. 
Lord, I pray for all of us tonight that we don't be those store-bought Christians, those Christians who look good like the rich young ruler on the outside, but Lord, that you would look into our hearts tonight, God, and that you would see a willingness in us to follow you wherever you go. God, a willingness in us to turn in immediate response to the commands that you give us. God, a a willingness in our hearts to take up our cross, to, to take up our burdens and also the burdens of others. And God, I thank you that your word says, come on, you search our hearts and you don't just leave us in our funk. If we're coming to you willing to be disciples, you'll take us. We don't have to be perfect to come to you, but as we grow closer in relationship, Jesus, we become more and more like you. So God, help us feel you tonight. Help us see you tonight. Be with us in Jesus' name. Let's worship.